0: K-Pasa Mufasa, what's up everybody? Welcome to the Micropreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. And today we've got Dustin Robinson of Eter Investments and Nucleus, a data-driven psychedelics platform on the podcast today.
1: When I first started investing, it was competitive for investors to get into deals. And so the companies were dictating terms. Now that's completely flipped. Now companies are coming to me and they're saying, you tell me the terms, we just need capital. And so, you know, from an investor's perspective, there's actually a really good opportunity if you have dry powder, If you have capital to deploy,
0: you could really get into companies at a very attractive valuation. This guy's a big fish in a big pond, and he's going to tell us all about the world of psychedelic investment and about the crowdfunding initiative underway right now with Nucleus. We're talking value chains, talking macroeconomics, talking data-driven portfolio plays. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please consider rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing it with your friends. It's a pleasure to host this podcast for you. Without further ado, let's get down to business k Pasa Mufasa, what's up, everybody? Welcome, Dustin Robinson, founder and managing partner of Eater Investments, in the house today. Welcome to the Micropreneur Podcast, Dustin. How are things in New York today?
1: Absolutely fantastic. I'm from Florida, but I'm here in New York doing some, doing some business, and so it's uh, it's colder than Florida. So I'm not my my Florida blood's not quite used to it, but I'm I'm hanging in there.
0: Well, man, you've recently closed on a you know twenty million dollar investment fund and counting. Something that I've been following. That's Eter Investments, of course. And there are a number of portfolio companies contained within that portfolio. And I've actually hosted Neil Markey from Beckley Retreats on the podcast and met a few of the other people involved with some of the different companies you're working with. So you've got a broad spectrum of different companies in the space that you're rapidly developing and investing in, right? From biotech companies like Awaken Life Sciences to VR and tech companies like Trip, all the way to retreat companies like Beckley retreats, right? So can you give us a broad strokes overview of some of these portfolio companies that you're currently working with? And why don't you have any psychedelic media companies in the portfolio yet?
1: Good question. So
0: yeah, the way we look at it, we kind of bucket our investments. Well, first off, we thought it was
1: important being a nascent industry to invest across the full value chain. Uh, So that's why you'll see, you know, yes, we have biotech investments. We also have clinic investments. We have technology investments. So we kind of bucket it into four buckets. The, the first is the, the suppliers of the APIs, the active pharmaceutical ingredients. The second is drug discovery and drug development companies. The third is the clinics, retreats, and other delivery services. And then, of course, the fourth is technology and other supporting infrastructure. So really, that's how we look at it. We see a full broad value chain within this industry. And since it's so nascent, we thought it was very important to really be exposed in a lot of different directions. And as far as why we haven't invested in media, is because early on, we saw a lot of different decks, a lot of companies starting to launch in in the media area. And we were already doing kind of our our own events. I do a monthly panel at Soho House. I'm actually out here in New York last night. We did a a panel at the Ludlow Soho House, and it was awesome. It was on Conscious Capitalism. Um, And so what we decided to do, since we were building our own audience is we decided to launch our own venture studio, launching various media and data assets. So our fund is more focused on like the biotech, the delivery of service, the production of the product, but then our venture studio is really more focused on the media and data side of the industry. We've already launched, uh, I think it's about 10 different companies underneath Nucleus and we're currently doing a crowdfunding for Nucleus. Our Our goal with the media enterprise is really to build a big audience. There's a growing interest of the psychedelic space. More people are typing in on Google, psychedelic therapy or psychedelic investment. We want to really uh you know, really be be one of the top uh pop ups when someone googles something across our various assets. And so we decided to do a crowdfunding because we want our broad audience to become our investors. We want our investors to become our audience. So currently doing a crowdfunding and it's going very well with Nucleus.
0: I've had a chance to tap in with Logan, who I believe is heading up Nucleus. So I see that the core of this ecosystem is a proprietary data system called Newly N-E-U-L-Y. And of course, data plays a huge role in the process of moving a company from the idea stage into a business model and then through through launch optimization and scaling of that company so what kinds of qualities do you look for in a company when deciding to invest in them and how does data help to shape that decision
1: yeah it's interesting because you know we have nucleus which owns newly psychedelic all this different data that we're gathering but then of course we have our fund that we're investing in a lot of companies so we actually are, are users of the, the newly database and PsychedelicInvest.com, and some of our other assets. So there's kind of this this flywheel effect that's happening with what we're doing. But yeah, data is super important. I mean, we are a data and science driven venture fund. We, we don't just kind of invest on, you know, a feeling, um, although we are seed and series A round investors. So a lot of time we are investing in very, very early stage companies. We do a credible amount of diligence on the team. Uh, we obviously, if IP is an issue, we do a lot of diligence on IP for some of the, the biotech investments. We we work, we look at financial modeling. So we look at a lot of different aspects, but certainly data is, is very important, understanding what academic centers are doing, which research for which compounds, understanding if a company is researching 5-MeO-DMT for addiction, you know, we want to know what other companies are studying 5-MeO-DMT for what other indications and what other company, companies are looking at different psychedelic compounds for addiction. So you know, whatever the, the, the compound is and the indication is we like to know as much as we possibly can about both the compound and the indication. And that's largely what we use our database for.
0: Word. Yeah. I'm impressed, man. I am learning a lot of new vocab here. I'm going to start using flywheel and conversation and hopefully that'll help me raise some more capital. So as previously mentioned, Eter closed a $20 million funding round earlier this year, which is like 19950000 more than I've managed to raise. So congrats on that. And that makes one of the biggest funds in the invest, one of the biggest investment funds in the psychedelic space. Now the volatility of the psychedelic market over the last few years, has diminished some of the early ebullience and the unabashed exuberance, we'll call it, that a lot of early investors in this space were clamoring about going back to 2019 and in the years before the pandemic, right? And I've heard even reputable analysts and thought leaders in the space mention this possibility that there may be an inverse relationship between the size of a company and the value it returns. And I'm just curious, why are you so bullish on investing and scaling psychedelic companies right now when so much of the market has taken a beating over the last two years?
1: Yeah, I think one thing that's important is to understand that just the the broad economics the macroeconomic situation, nearly every industry is getting hit. So, you know, the psychedelic industry is not alone in this, Uh, you know, tech is getting crushed, uh, fintech. Real estate all you know I, I just went to an investor conference last week where there was over two hundred and fifty venture capital funds and across multiple industries, and the sentiment um, among almost every industry is you need to tighten it up because capital is extremely hard to come by, and the psychedelic industry is is no different but what 's exciting about the psychedelic industry is that science is objective to markets, and what I mean by that is that the science is still strong i 'd be very concerned. If you know we were seeing bad data readouts all of a sudden, like there's research coming out that psychedelics don't work for mental health and behavioral health, but it's the complete opposite. The science has actually gotten stronger and stronger over the past couple of years since i've been investing, so that's really what we 're focused on. We believe you know yes we're going through some hard economic times, so we, you got to buckle down there's definitely going to be a lot of companies, I believe, in the next six to twelve months that go out of business i mean really a lot of the psychedelic industry a vast majority of it is biotech and in biotech it's very capital intensive so you have to be able to raise capital in order to live to the next day and the reality is a lot of these companies are not going to get financed. And it's unfortunate because, you know, it's fortunate and unfortunate. There's a lot of companies that probably shouldn't be in the industry to begin with. So, you know, it's it's, it's a good thing because it's going to flesh out those bad companies. And what we'll be left with is the, the true value-added companies. But even companies that have strong teams, strong IPs are struggling to get capital. And there will unfortunately be some, com- some of those companies that do go out of business or have to sell off their assets or, you know, do some sort of strategic, uh, you know, strategic relationship with someone else to to kind of maybe sell the company or, or partner with someone else. So, you know, it's a tough time in the broad markets. It's a tough time in the psychedelic markets. But at the end of the day, the science is proving out stronger and stronger. And my passion, you know, what I've been working on for nearly my whole life is really finding solutions for mental and behavioral health, whether it's through my law firm, my nonprofit, my venture studio, my investment fund. I'm focused on solving what I believe is the largest problem society is facing. And that's the mental health crisis. And I believe that psychedelics, because of the science, not, I'm not looking at the markets on this, I'm looking at the science based on that science. I believe that psychedelics could be absolutely transformative for mental health. So that's why I'm bullish on it. That's why I'm, you know, a long-term investor in this space and I'm holding strong. It's a, it's certainly a tough time for investors. Uh, but we have a, a long-term strategy on this and we believe in the long-term. The, if you invest in good teams, good IP you know, you will do well uh, looking into this space. And by the way, it's actually good to be an investor in one respect right now because valuations are very depressed and there's been a shift. When I first started investing, it was competitive for investors to get into deals. And so the, the companies were dictating terms. Now that's completely flipped. Now companies are coming to me and they're saying, you tell me the terms. We just need capital. And so, you know, from an investor's perspective, there's actually a really good opportunity if you have dry powder, if you have capital to deploy you could really get into companies at a very attractive valuation.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of people who agree with you on that front as far as the long term strategy. And of course, we're starting to see the policy change too. And I'm sure you've been raptly paying attention to what's going on in Oregon and Colorado. So I want to go tap into that next. And I'm curious about how you're positioning yourself to participate in the legal psychedelic market in those states. I have a number of friends working across the value chain, as you say, in both states right now. And there's so many people just kind of, you know, observing keenly what's going on, how it's rolling out and trying to position themselves either as a peer biotech play, you know, doing research in the clinical angle or the picks and shovels type services, which is kind of where I come in with the media, right? So I'm just curious, what are some of the strategies you're employing and the specific steps that you're taking to position yourself to participate in the legal psychedelic industry in Oregon and Colorado?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, we have I started my nonprofit in 2019 that is focused on legal reform around psychedelics at a city and state level. So we've actually drafted multiple bills, uh, you know, through my my nonprofit. We're actually working on a new bill we'll be filing in this next legislative session here in Florida uh, that we're very excited about. You know, first two bills were really messaging bills. We want to get the conversation started in a very red state. And uh, it got the conversation started. We got a lot of PR. We had a lot of lobbyists reaching out. We had a lot of p- politicians reaching out to us, wanting to get involved. This next bill, I actually want to pass, and I believe it will pass. Now, on the investment fund side, we actually kind of are staying away from this the, the city and state legalization. We're investing mainly drug development, companies that are operating legally. And what investors, it's important for them to understand is that in, in states like Colorado and in Oregon, it, they're still operating much like cannabis they're operating illegally from a federal perspective. So as an investor, you know, investing in something that's actually illegal from a federal perspective, it comes with its own complications. Some investors are okay with that. Some investors are not okay with that. So, you know, what we're doing is we're monitoring it very closely. We've received dozens of decks on different businesses that are trying to launch in Colorado and Oregon. We really have not taken, um, any, any position yet. We haven't invested in any companies out there. I think it's going to take a lot of time for that to develop. I haven't seen anything that's truly investable in either of those markets. It's going to take a lot of time. There's still a lot of red tape in those states. That's why we actually invested in Beckley Retreats. Beckley Retreats operates in Jamaica, Netherlands, a lot less red tape. They're absolutely having, giving people transformative experiences out there, and they're doing an incredible job. The demand is huge for these compounds, And I think it's going to be very challenging with some of the red tape in Oregon and Colorado and and slowly but surely. I I don't even think the red tape necessarily is a bad thing. Sometimes it's good. Put more red tape and then slowly peel it off, um, you know, as we get more comfortable with kind of what the right container is out there. Um, but really, from an investment perspective, is very challenging. Now, what we have done through our venture studio, Nucleus, one of the 10 assets that I mentioned is called organ And organ is basically trying to be a value-added asset for people who are looking for organ psilocybin services. We have every profile. We're going to have every profile for every service center, every profile for every facilitator. We're going to offer tools. So we're not going to have a license in Oregon. We're not going to Operate in Oregon. Instead, what our plan is, is to kind of be a concierge, a, a middle person between the person seeking the service and the person actually getting the service. And, you know, I was very familiar with Measure 109 in Oregon. We've kind of built Oregon Psilocybin Concierge very particular to be in compliance with Measure 109. For example, in Measure 109, although the administration obviously has to happen in person, the administration of psilocybin has to happen in Oregon at a service center the preparation could be done virtually. So what we plan to do on Oregon, psilocybinconcierge.com is actually offer people, you could actually book that preparation session with a facilitator virtually and kind of check the box, collect all the documentations, that is required. You need a client intake form. You need a sign off. There's a bunch of information. So our plan with Oregon Psilocybin Concierge is really to, to help people enter that market if they're interested in Oregon Psilocybin services. But it's exciting. And I expect a lot more states to be coming online. We are watching it closely. And, you know, we may start investing in it when we believe the time is right.
0: Sure. And you know, part of the reason I doubled down on doing the media is, first of all, I have a background in it. Second of all, I realized this has no red tape around it. I can sing, dance and shout about psychedelics all I want. Okay. So you've been a, you've been heavily invested in the cannabis world for a number of years, right? Mr. Cannabis law, now Mr. Psychedelic law. So you've actually had front row tickets to this transition from an underground legacy market coming above board and dealing with regulators and becoming a legal regulated industry. And I'm curious if you have any insights you can share with us about how that's happening with psychedelics. Is it following the cannabis blueprint exactly, or are there some nuances and appreciable differences to the way that you see psychedelics being rolled out as something that have traditionally been criminalized and not not part of mainstream society? Into now being, you know, on the cover of Sports Illustrated and you know the BBC and you know all of these different mainstream outlets covering them. What's that like from your perspective, seeing this underground market rolled out into a legal, regulated industry?
1: Yeah, I think um, you know the main distinction with respect to the underground in cannabis versus the underground in psychedelics getting into above ground is you know cannabis rolled out as a retail market. So if you were an underground brand. Um, or an underground grower, you could kind of get in and, and build your brand. You know, you built it on the underground market. Now you could kind of bring it above ground, and you have your brand that's going to sell at retail. In the way it's being rolled out in Colorado and Oregon, and the way even the drug development companies are doing – the the product isn't retailed. It's it's delivered at in Oregon they call it a service center, right? In biotech they'll just call it a clinic, right? So so you're not really going to see. I don't think for quite some time brands emerge as like a product brand. What you will see emerge is like retreats emerge as as a brand. Um, so it's it's very different now. So there's kind of like in the underground psychedelic market there's the brands which I think are going to have trouble getting into the white market because of what, what, what I just said. But then you also have like the underground facilitators and that's where things will get pretty interesting where these Phillips facilitators that have been doing this underground. Now, for example, out in Oregon, they have a licensed facilitator program. So you will be able to get the license for, you got to go through a training program. One of our portfolio companies, Fluence is actually training out in Oregon. They have already, I think completed their first two cohorts in Oregon. Um, But these facilitators now could become come above ground and actually start providing these psilocybin services in a legal way, once again, still federally illegal. Um, And I've had a lot of questions on whether, you know, what's interesting is that this kind of idea of whether facilitators are actually doing anything illegal, if they're not actually providing the medicine, they're just holding space. And that's a much longer discussion, uh, but it is gray, and and you know anyone who wants to discuss that, happy to discuss that. But it's it's a complicated situation. I think a lot of people are assuming just because they're not delivering the medicine, they're not actually doing anything illegal, and that may be the case. But with a bunch of you know other conditions attached to it as well. Um, but yeah, it's it's exciting. I think you know I think in you know, a black market. Coming up to a white market, look, the black market in the cannabis space is still thriving, right? In California, it's one of the biggest challenges is, you know, with all these taxes and stuff that the California cannabis market, the legal market put on it, most people are like, screw it. I'm just going to stay in the black market. And so I think we need to be very careful about then the psychedelic industry um, about, you know, taxing this too high or putting too much red tape such that, you know, it doesn't make sense for some of these black market facilitators to enter into the white market space.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you know, with your background as a lawyer, and I come from a family that has a background in law as well, are you seeing this as being a totally underserved niche? Because there's not too many psychedelic lawyers out there. I can name John Dennis out in Oregon. There's a handful in Colorado I've talked to, and you're positioning yourself well for this. But as far as like so many people getting into the space and so much hoopla around it and so much coverage, is there an emerging sector of psychedelic law? And is that something that, you know, you have people coming to you who are just utterly confounded about what they can and cannot do? Because it seems to be kind of confusing, even for people in the space to figure out exactly what they're legally able to do and where the ball falls on all that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's always these emerging spaces that I tend to gravitate towards. Um, I started off my legal career at Holland and Knight, big firm, a lot of red red tape and, you know. We were very particular in the clients that we took on and and I left there, I I had a manufacturing company, I went more entrepreneurial, then I came back to the the legal space, not because I wanted to, there was just a lot of people in the cannabis space that I was friends with that were asking for help doing these complex commercial transactions. And so it was exciting kind of, you know, from a legal perspective, there's no clear answer. Most of the time when people come to me, there's not a clear answer in in, in the cannabis space. And similarly on the psychedelic side, it's really not a clear answer either. So you're really kind of paving the way, figuring out business structures that you could actually arguably say are legal and business operations. So it's, it's, it, it's using the law as a backdrop, but most of my clients, you, you know, I understand the law, but it's really helping them from a business perspective as well. I'm, I'm an entrepreneur myself. I've launched multiple business. So it's really being able to take the law, understand what the law is, but then actually be able to kind of implement business strategies on top of that. And yeah, I think, you know, there's definitely opportunities for attorneys that are looking to get into, you know, psychedelics. I actually created of course I, I get calls from like um, a lot of law students they think what i do is like the coolest thing ever i have to remind them at the end of the day it's still legal work we're drafting contracts we're you know doing real estate deals it, it's normal legal work the the subject matter is cannabis and psychedelics but it's still legal work but because i was getting so many calls and so many attorneys interested in learning how they could get into space i actually created a coursework it's called you could find it on mrcannabislawcourse.com um, and it's basically coursework for people that for lawyers that want to get into the cannabis space. It's coursework they could take to give them the foundation they need. And then we also had a bonus edition of psychedelic course as well. So the psychedelic course really gives them the foundation and the understanding of what they would need if they wanted to transition and add psychedelics as a practice area. But I, I will say, you know, probably the area that gets the most legal work like on the cannabis side, to me, it's mainly transactional. That's where you're gonna see the most work as a lawyer. On the psychedelic side, a lot of it, the, the attorneys that are probably doing the best in the psychedelic space is on the IP side, patent attorney. So if you're a patent attorney and you wanna get into the psychedelic space, there's a real opportunity to see, see guys like Graham Pelichek and David Wood, These guys are patent attorneys. They've done an incredible job, kind of building their their psychedelic patent practice.
0: I know Graham personally, and he's a big fan of mycopreneur. So, you know, meeting people like that lets me know I'm on the right path. I was out in New York, and he came up to me, and I was like, "What do you do?" He's like, "I'm a patent attorney." I was like, "You watch the stuff I do? That's awesome, man!" So yeah, shout out Graham. Okay, so this is a podcast, of course, so the audience doesn't necessarily know what you look like if they haven't been following your work. So I just have to say, this dude is absolutely ripped. And I got to ask, like, you know, (laughs) I'm a former i division one college athlete. I've had periods in my life where I've worked out intensely and I've come up against the challenge of, of traveling a lot and trying to stay disciplined with workout routines while traveling. I know that you're back and forth between Miami and New York. You're going to conferences all over the place. What does your daily workout routine look like and what's your flow look like and how do you reconcile this need to be all over the place and on the road and traveling with your discipline to stay absolutely in immaculate physical condition?
1: Well, first, I just want to say, you know, my my motivation and inspiration largely comes from, you know, your videos in, in speedos. I mean, when I see you and your speedo. And I'm like, this guy is really breaking stigma on psychedelics. When people see a guy like that, that's open about using psychedelics with the physique that you have, I'm like, this guy's really, this is the way to break stigma. So no, but it, it, in all reality, you know, part, that is part of it. it. You know, part of what I'm doing, I think there's kind of this false narrative about people who take psychedelics, you know, are, you know, hippies, they're not physically fit, they're not mentally fit. And part of the brand that I'm trying to build is is really breaking stigma and changing, you know, the way people look at people that use these psychedelics. Anyone who knows me from a child, I've always been very much into sports, mental health, wellness. And I actually never tried any drugs up until three years ago. So my college friends think it's absolutely crazy that I hold the positions that I hold in both the cannabis and psychedelic space, because up until three years ago, I'm 37. So I waited until I was around 34 before I even tried anything. And the reason I tried is because I started getting into the space and I you know, I, 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 carried the stigma up until 34. And then doctor, I started working with doctors. I started investing in the space. And I was like, I got to try this myself. I was reading these research papers and it was the complete opposite of what I always thought these compounds did. I thought they turned your brain into mush, the opposite. My brain was lit on fire. Um, and so I think it's important that people see that these are not compounds for people who are fat, overweight, lazy, and hippies. This is These are compounds that could absolutely expand consciousness and could be used both for physical and mental mental health. So as far as like when I travel, my, I I literally just came from the gym before, before this, uh, this podcast. So my, my big rule is when I travel, the hotel has to have a gym in it. And every morning it's very simple. Just wake up, go to the gym. It's the first thing I do in the morning. I wake up, I walk my ass to the gym. I don't care how I feel. Honestly, I'm probably, some people would give you different advice on this. I don't even care if I'm sick. I take my ass to the gym. So I try to make to the gym. Some people say four or five days a week. I I try to go seven days a week. I don't always make it to the gym seven days a week, but I always have the intention of getting in there seven days a week. And and sometimes it's just stretching. Sometimes it's just rolling on a foam roller. Um, but it's important just mentally for me, I work so much. I, I mean, other than working out, I'm pretty much just working. So if I didn't have that that space to kind of, you know, not think about work, I think from a mental health perspective, I would just be absolutely crazy. And And if you see me on At a time when I haven't been in the gym for a few days, I am a way worse human being. So it's just about it's just as much about my mental health as it is about my physical health.
0: Yeah. You know, that point that you made about the stereotypes and the stigmas of people who use psychedelics, that's something that I like to talk about frequently on this podcast, because I come from a very traditional family background. A lot of my friends and family are still very conservative, you know, lawyers, Catholic church people. You know, I've worked in churches and in schools before, and I was a baseball player growing up and went to college to play baseball and all that. And I'm kind of the opposite uh, from you in some ways, and that I did a lot of psychedelics in college, and a lot of people were surprised that I stayed in college and that I, you know, graduated and got a job, and like you're teaching high school now, and you got married and all that. I'm like, yeah, because I firmly believe that psychedelics are not supposed to be pigeonholed and limited to this idea of like you need to change your name and move to the commune and we need to disrupt everything. I like, I think that there's tremendous value in integrating them into regular life, and that's something I hear a lot now too. It's like people who you know are 55-year-old grandmothers or whatever, and they want to start microdosing. And people, you know, who are professionals, who I'm sure you've dealt with a lot of this, and they've started to transition the way they think about psychedelics because for so long, the stigma attached to it was this sort of Timothy Leary, you know, tune, on, tune in, turn on, drop out. And for a lot of people, like that has zero appeal. So that's something I really appreciate when we can bring that perspective and I have many friends who have confided in me. They'd love to try psychedelics, but they're afraid of losing their mind. And I think that this, you know, this is part of where the education comes in and finding ways that we can have this conversation and say you can make it work for your lifestyle.
1: And, and that's and
0: that's part, you know, and, and media plays such an important role in
1: that, right? And that's why I love, you know, the stuff that you're putting out. And, you know, we, we got to meet at the conference, and I was like a fanboy when I got to meet you. Is you know, I, I love the work you're doing. We need people to educate, you know. We need to educate, but we also need to have fun with it, right? And we, we need to kind of break that stigma. The best way to break stigma is through media, stories, filmmaking, all this different stuff. And that's really what we're focused on at Nucleus is, you know, it's great that we're investing in these biotech companies and these companies doing serious drug development and, you know, chemistry and science. But at the end of the day, we need we need to break stigma. We need to raise awareness around these compounds. And that's that's purely the mission of what Nucleus is doing. Each of our assets is focused on, on decentralizing information, giving the broader public this information um, and breaking stigma and raising awareness and, and media companies like yours and others are, are gonna play an extremely important role in doing that.
0: Well, I love hearing that, that's great. Thank you for that. So I've kind of hit the sweet spot here with a lot of what I wanted to talk about, but before we let you go today, would love to hear what's on the horizon for yourself personally, for ETAIR, for Nucleus, You've got so much going on. I don't even know where to start with this, but let's say like looking over the next 6 months to a year, what are some of the things that we can look forward to coming out of your portfolio companies and out of yourself?
1: Yeah, so we're we've been talking to a lot of groups that we we, we want to get into Launch Fund 2, a much larger fund. So we've been doing in addition to the 20 million that we raised, we've been doing SBVs with some of our investors. So we're actually managing quite a bit more capital than just the 20 million, but this industry needs a lot of capital coming into it. It it needs a lot of capital coming in over the next couple of years. And we're doing everything I can. And we were even talking to other venture capital funds, you know, to to see if like they wanted to collaborate, because we just need more capital coming in. So hopefully over the the next six months, we will hopefully have launched our our second fund. Hopefully it's a much larger fund and hopefully we will have had a good anchor investor and have raised a good good chunk of the capital uh, for that fund. As far as Nucleus goes, we are currently crowdfunding. Anyone who's interested in looking at that, it's with Nucleus.com. Just click on invest. You'll see everything very easy. You can invest as little as $200. We purposefully did it like that. My my minimum for my fund one was 250K and so many people were excluded at 250K. So one of the reasons we did this crowdfunding is because I had so many people reaching out, but they're like, I just can't do 250K. Well, fine. If you can't do 250K, almost everyone could do at a minimum $200. So we launched the crowdfunding so more people could have access to investing in this space. Um, so hopefully over the course of the next six months, we'll close out that crowdfunding raise. Hopefully we'll have a broad, diverse cap table of investors that really reflect society at large, not accredited investors and just venture capital funds, but a diverse population that's pop passionate about psychedelics. That's really what we want is our our investor base. And then, you know, all of our companies, you know, they're all raising capital and, and actually we have 18 portfolio companies. So I can't go through all of them, but, you know, a lot of them are doing some really exciting stuff. We're, we're working very, very closely with them. And then on the law firm side, we're, we're actually opening up a couple more states in 2023. So we're already in five states. Uh, we probably will be adding another three to four states in 2023. So there's been a lot of growth, a lot of demand for growth uh, on the legal side. So we're just going to keep pushing on that.
0: Rock and roll. Dustin Robinson, thank you very much for joining us on the Michaelpreneur podcast. You're welcome back anytime. Have a great day.
1: you so much. Have a good one. Appreciate it. And that is
0: a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At micopreneur podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micopreneur podcast.